If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. Welcome to the Speech Uncensored Podcast. My name is Leanne Porter and I'm your host. We're talking about health literacy today. We're going over what it is, how to measure it, why it's important for our patients and their outcomes, and how we can improve it. Um, My guest today is Brittany Ferry, and she's an occupational therapist who is also very passionate about health literacy. She's got some great applicable tips to share with us today. I'm really excited. So without further ado, let's get right into it and meet Brittany. All right, welcome to the Speech Uncensored podcast. I'm sitting down with Brittany Ferry today, who's going to be talking to us about health literacy, how clinicians can preserve their roles as educators. Um, I love this topic. I love health literacy, and I love that we're hearing from a non-SLP today. This is very exciting. Welcome, Brittany. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Um, So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, So I'm an occupational therapist. I've been practicing for a little over four years, um, primarily in mental health settings. Um, Over the past year and a half, I transitioned out of traditional clinical settings um, and kind of started my business uh, called Simplicity of Health. Um, So I work entirely remote and I do a combination of teaching, consulting, uh, community wellness education, um, and independent contracting for telehealth, uh, along with health writing. Um, so a lot of those services have kind of led me to develop a passion in health literacy and, and really just want to get the word out there. Um, in particular, wanting to make this pod course um, nowadays because health literacy is really important now more than ever. Uh, there's too much misinformation out there and, uh, you know, panic and fear are kind of leading people to, Uh, possibly look into sources that might not be as reliable and and trustworthy as they should be. Uh, So I think it's really important to get the word out there about uh, health literacy. Excellent. Yeah, I totally agree. And as one of those sources that people will get information from, like as I'm working with my patients, I want to provide them with reliable health information. I want to make sure the sources that I'm using are reliable as well. I mean, one would assume, but still. So... Yeah. <laughs> can never be too sure. Yeah, yeah. We have to know how to critically evaluate where we're getting our information from as well. Okay. All right. That's awesome. So let's get crack a lacking. What is health literacy? Um, so health literacy, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services and a lot of other government organizations have have defined it, um, all slightly different definitions, um, but mainly Uh, It's the degree to which individuals have the capacity to obtain, process, and understand basic health information to make appropriate health decisions. Um, So really, that looks like the entire, every step of the way uh, of health literacy, you know, finding information, understanding what it means, and then really applying it in their daily life. Um, So kind of the entire spectrum is something that we see as healthcare providers Um, And it's something that's important for us to address uh, with patients that we see. Um, So a lot of people might assume that this pertains just to the health decisions that they make uh, when people are ill. But health literacy is actually much more broad and it encompasses choices that most individuals make many times each day. Uh, So it could really pertain to something as small as, you know, meal prep, uh, anything that you're eating throughout the course of the day, uh, lifestyle choices, habits, behaviors, routines, anything like that. Yeah, I am so glad you brought that up. We often overlook that thought, but health literacy is 
preventative health too, right? Like when we want to equip people to make good decisions so that they might avoid typical lifestyle diseases that plague most Americans, they need that information and that education so that they can make those good, healthy lifestyle living decisions now before they become ill or sick with something. Right. Absolutely. And and preventative care is, is, you know, you mentioning that is really reinforcing that that's a big part of health literacy. You know, we really want to educate people to take care of their health before it gets to the point where they develop sickness. Mm -hmm. Yes. Awesome. Okay, cool. Um, So health literacy is broken up into several different skills. Um, A lot of skills that we learn in elementary school um, and the kind of skills that really carry with us throughout our life. Um, They all kind of have a formative role in health literacy and, you know, understanding information. Um, So the ability to read, write, do basic math, uh, use basic speech and communication skills and our reading comprehension also. Um, So all these areas kind of play important precursors to these more advanced skills like critical thinking, judgment, goal setting and planning. Um, So these Skills also contribute to the different levels of health literacy. Um, The three basic levels of health literacy are basic or functional health literacy, uh, which really involves understanding somebody's health issues. So performing low skill tasks or following directions. So the really basic foundational skills. Um, And then the next level is communicative and interactive health literacy, uh, which really involves asking questions, identifying one's own knowledge gaps, Um, And that's kind of the level where uh, advocacy really comes into play. So either advocating for yourself um, or, you know, having other people advocate on your behalf uh, in terms of health knowledge. Um, And the third, the top level is critical health literacy, uh, which involves making informed health decisions in the context of everyday life. So it's kind of really involved with the ebb and flow of life. You're kind of making these decisions without even realizing it sometimes um, because it's it's so high level that it's just part of your daily life. Um, so taking responsibility for your health, seeking out information whenever you need it, uh, and constantly looking at the reliability of all information streams. Um, so like we were just mentioning, uh, looking at the reliability of these sources, um, if, if you're so high level that you're using this critical health literacy, um, you're going to be inundated with all this information from any any media uh, source. So you're going to constantly really need to be assessing the reliability. Um, you know, whether you realize it or not, you have to look at the reliability of all these sources. Um, a lot of uh, research is actually identifying a fourth level of health literacy called holistic, holistic health literacy. Um, you know, not all sources have really supported this yet, but it is just a proposed level. Um, But I think it it does bring up some important points um, because it also includes uh, ideas such as tolerance, understanding culture, environmental consciousness, and analyzing the state of the world from the various points of view. Um, So again, like I said, it's not a, a widely accepted component, but it does bring in some important concepts within health literacy um, because being culturally sensitive is a really important part of health literacy, uh, as is the environment, uh, especially in today's world. Mm, yeah, I like that. Now, when you're talking about environmental consciousness, are you talking about like our like the Earth's environment or our current environment? Like um, sometimes we talk about environments as our setting, like a work setting, a home setting, a hospital setting, like how, how are they determined? Like what kind of definition of environmental are they using there? Um, They're really mainly talking about our role in the environment. So I think more contextually, um, but I think it definitely can be extended to our impact on the environment. So our health related decisions, um, you know, how are they impacting the environment and how is the impact, environment impacting us in return. Um, so I think it's just kind of that symbiotic relationship. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I kind of like this fourth level, but it very much is like the highest level of like consciousness and awareness and wokeness, honestly, like it's <laughs> right there. Like it's like when all the powers combine, you get the fourth level. Like, Yeah, I do really like the level. But yeah, like you're saying, I don't really think it's something that a lot of our clients would really get to the point of. Um, But I think if you're doing, you know, community based interventions with individuals who are 
already pretty healthy and you're working on just preventative maintenance, I think this is something they might be able to comprehend and benefit from. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool. Very nice. Um, So a lot of governmental bodies, such as uh, the U.S. Department of Education, have actually measured health literacy um, in their efforts to measure literacy in general. Um, So they've kind of broken down the scores into below basic, basic, intermediate, and proficient. Um, So the framework breaks breaks these categories uh, down, and it's based off of English. So unfortunately, any individual who completes it or who cannot complete it due to a language barrier can't use this system. Um, although, you know, it does give some sort of baseline for uh, most United States adults. Um, so you might be wondering now what really constitutes a health literacy assessment. Um, so they've kind of broken these levels down uh, into actual tasks, which I thought was actually really helpful uh, to understanding, you know, what an individual who falls under each level might be able to do. Um, So an individual who scores proficient uh, health literacy, uh, they'd be able to find information required to define a medical term by searching through a complex document. They would be able to calculate an individual's health insurance costs for one year using a chart with monthly costs based on income and family size. And they'd also be able to evaluate data to choose the legal document applicable to a specific health situation. You know, as as you were reading that, I was thinking, I feel like at my best, I could be proficient. But sometimes if there's a lot going on and there's a lot on my plate, I don't think that I would be able to dedicate the time and like consciousness to really be proficient at that level on a consistent basis for like that, you know, does that make sense? Right. No, I totally agree because, you know, if you're feeling okay, yeah, I'd, I would really like to say I'd, I'd be able to ace the proficient level, but when you factor illness into it, I, I can't even imagine being able to deal with some of the things that our patients deal with. Um, so the tasks under this proficient level, yeah, if I had other things going on, yeah, I would need help with that. And that really mm-hmm. kind of gives you some perspective as to what our patients are dealing with. Yeah. Yeah, they might be proficient in without having to to deal with all the emotional and stress and health burdens, but then when they are, that really affects their ability to to be proficient in health literacy at different points in time. Right, absolutely. And and like I mentioned a little bit earlier, this is all kind of fluid. You know, this changes throughout the course of somebody's life. So, you know, as they grow and learn more things or face different obstacles, you know, these levels are are changing every day sometimes. True, true. Um, So some of the other levels, intermediate, um, an individual would be able to determine a healthy weight range for a person of a specified height based on a BMI chart. They'd be able to find the age range when children should receive a certain vaccine based on a chart with vaccines and appropriate ages. Um, I think that one's actually really important because vaccinations are such a hot topic today. It's it's good to be able to, to learn about that. Um, determine what time to take a prescription medication based on a drug label that relates timing of medication to eating and identifying three substances that may interact with an over-the-counter drug to cause a side effect using information on the drug label. Um, And then we also have the basic and below basic sections. Uh, The basic is give two reasons a person with no symptoms of a specific disease should be tested for the disease using a clearly written pamphlet. And below basic, uh, somebody in that level would be able to identify how often they should have a specific medical test using a clearly written pamphlet, identify what is permissible to drink before a medical test based on a short set of instructions, and circle the date of a medical appointment on a hospital appointment slip. So I really think that a lot of these tasks, like I mentioned earlier, they can, they can be easy for some people given certain days um, or, you know, certain personal situations, but they can definitely get difficult uh, as people have um, other things going on. And uh, some of these are really even closely related. So I could definitely see people switching between these levels uh, pretty readily. You know, all these different levels, how are they, is there like a, I might have missed this. Was there a specific assessment that someone is given or they can go and like take online? Like how, how are they, how are we assessing people where we're labeling them proficient or intermediate at health literacy? 
Uh, so that this uh, these results are actually from the U.S. Department of Education. So they did a health literacy portion of their general literacy assessment. Um, so it's it's more of a governmental thing. Um, it doesn't really relate to rehab as much. I'm going to get into some rehab assessments for health literacy a little bit later because it's definitely important for us to be assessing. Oh, okay. So it's just saying like, here are criteria and here are tasks that people could do and that would place them at these different levels of ability and understanding health literacy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a lot of moving parts. I mean, it's a complex topic, but it's important. <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree. Um, so based off of those levels and everything we've talked about so far, uh, it's really important to identify people that are at risk for low health literacy. Um Research has found that older adults and uh, individuals over the age of 65 are at risk. Um, men are actually identified as low risk uh, because several studies identified that women had higher health literacy. Um, low income individuals, minority populations, um, those with a limited education, meaning less than a high school diploma, and non English speaking individuals, um, those are all identified populations with. Uh, who are at risk for low health literacy. Um, So how does the U.S. rank in health literacy scores? Uh, So a lot of governmental organizations, like I mentioned earlier, the U.S. Department of Education uh, and some others have kind of identified um, how the U.S. scores. Um, So there's one in particular called the Program for the International Assessment of Adult Competencies. Um, They looked at health literacy of individuals ages 16 to 65, Um, And results showed that 12% and 9% of U.S. adults scored in the highest levels of literacy and numeracy proficiency. Um, So that's 12% in the literacy and 9% in the numeracy, um, which is incredibly low. Um, And the majority of individuals, uh, which was 36% in the U.S., fell within level three, indicating that they have below average literacy proficiency. Um, So this is definitely a big problem area, um, you know, something that's impacting probably every level of society um, and certainly something that impacts every aspect of healthcare. I mean, you know, if if health professionals are not addressing this, it definitely has the uh, potential to impact many, many issues within treatment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, So and that's definitely what we're getting to next, the impact of poor health literacy on public health, uh, because the the effects are definitely widespread. Um, So low health literacy can cause increased health care costs, underutilization of established preventative health measures such as vaccinations and health screenings, uh, decreased comprehension of most health information communicated, an overall lack of knowledge regarding medical conditions, both mental and physical a greater risk of individual hospitalization and mortality rates, Uh, treatment noncompliance, an inability to independently manage chronic health conditions or to seek assistance with community disease management, and low quality of life and self-efficacy along with subjective and objective health status. Yeah, I'd really like to kind of point out two things that you just mentioned that um, poor health literacy really impacts people's ability to follow through on treatment recommendations, and it leads to them unable to manage their chronic health conditions. So sometimes we see that and we just interpret it as people being um, uninterested in their health. But in the reality is they might not understand how or have the tools to properly care for their health or follow through on the recommendations we want to give them. And so, like, we have to consider that as a fact. And if we think, well, I told them about this, like, what else did you do? How did you make sure that they understood the information that they gave you, that they had the tools to follow through with that at home? Like, it's it's so much more than just giving a five-minute lecture and leaving. So... I'm excited to dig deeper in that with you. <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that actually it, it kind of feeds into one of my other passions, mental health. Um, so kind of assessing the that effective side of patients to really identify, okay, who might be you know disinterested, unmotivated, uh, uninterested for other reasons, and who might really just have a lack of comprehension that you know leads them to present in a certain way. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, so there's, there's actually a lot of indirect and informal signs of poor health literacy that we may or may not recognize as healthcare practitioners. 
Um, so appointment issues. So patients who are coming late, missing days or coming on the wrong day. Um, patients who might identify pills by color and shape, not by name or purpose. Um, patients who are incorrectly taking their medication, either at the wrong frequency or wrong dosage. Uh, patients who can't explain their diagnosis or reason for a recent procedure or hospitalization. Patients who are unable to fill out health-related forms. Patients who cannot demonstrate exercises, splint-wearing schedules, uh, use of adaptive equipment or durable medical equipment, etc. Um, so really anything that you do in therapy if they're unable to, to kind of, you know, demonstrate it back. Um, patients who can't report medical or surgical history. Patients who avoid educational materials or any health discussions with allied health professionals. And those who don't have glasses, hearing aids, or other assistive devices, and they use that as a reason to not engage in health discussions uh, or read informational handouts and things like that. Yeah. Now, um, Brittany, I have a quick question for you. As you were discussing kind of those signs, I was wondering, um, like we're, we're operating under the assumption as well that we have already ruled out any other kind of cognitive impairment or communication impairment that might be hindering their, their understanding and comprehension of the education as well, right? Like this, like we've weeded those things out and we're recognizing now it's, it's simply a lack of understanding and education about the health process and health literacy on the whole. Right. Definitely. Because, you know, as any healthcare clinician, you have to in assess the impact of cognition um, because, yeah, that definitely could have an impact. Uh, you know, you could you could lecture health literacy all day long to a patient, but if they don't have the cognition to really pick up on it, um, that's something you can't always remediate. So you have to make sure that you're kind of getting those reinforcements from the environment, um, either educating their caregivers, their loved ones, um, anybody who's involved in their care, really. Um, to make sure you kind of have that well-rounded um, support system. Um, and, and like you were mentioning, yeah, other areas, um, kind of the sensory impairments that I addressed in the last bullet, um, no glasses, hearing aids, or other assistive devices. Um, that's another thing. It, it can really come across as poor health literacy um, if they don't have those cognitive aids. Um, so it's really important to make sure that those are in place um, before you really assess health literacy because it, it can definitely uh, present differently. To healthcare practitioners. Um, so it, it may come as no surprise that many aspects of our health, health system foster a lack of comprehension and miscommunication. Um, you know, I've heard from many, many individuals over the course of my career, you know, how difficult medical jargon can be and, um, you know, how complicated our healthcare system is really. Um, so the use of medical jargon or complex statistics in patient materials is definitely more common than it should be. Um, you know, on, on things like discharge instructions and medication schedules. Um, also, not using appropriate mediums to relay information. So giving print materials to somebody who has poor vision or is unable to comprehend it. Um, and also providing expected responses without understanding the patient's need for assistance. Um, unfortunately, I've seen this happen a lot with doctors who might approach patients and say, OK, you need to lower your blood pressure and then, you know, call it a day. That's the end of the session. Um, you know, you really need to break it down for these patients, you know, and understand some patients might not know how to do that. Um, and if they don't, you need to make sure they're connected with professionals to help them do that. Um, and also offering generalized medical information that is not culturally sensitive. So like I said earlier, um, you know, culture definitely plays a big part in health literacy uh, and it should definitely be a big part of everybody's intervention for health literacy. Yeah, I think a big part of that is just recognizing that you may not share the same values as the person that you're um, presenting health literacy to. And so you can't assume that they're going to want to make the same decisions or have the same priorities and values as you. So that's big. Yeah. <laughs> right. Definitely. And like we were talking about compliance earlier, um, you know, people might seem disinterested or, uh, you know, resistant to treatment when really they're just not open to certain modalities, possibly due to their culture. And if that's not something you're addressing, then you might just think you're dealing with a difficult patient rather than somebody who has very specific needs. Um, so I thought it was really important to break down um, those instances that we just previously talked about um, and really talked about how healthcare providers can mitigate these common issues. 
Um, so we talked about too much medical jargon in uh, communication materials. Um, and I think uh, therapists can really use computer software and apps to help develop clearly written and peer-reviewed patient materials. Um, they can also do assessments on their existing content uh, by running them through readability tools. Um, so we're going to talk about readability tools a little bit later on, um, but they point out areas to improve and, and areas that really can uh, use more simplification. Um, and also inappropriate mediums of information relay. Um, so this can kind of be fixed by creating various types of media to assist others with understanding health info. Um, so instead of just handing out, you know, basic, um, you know, paper handouts to everybody, maybe developing videos, maybe developing activities, um, developing uh, audiobooks, uh, really uh, various types that really kind of cater to every population. Um, and it's also really important uh, to test learning styles uh, at the evaluation or your first meeting with patients um, to really determine their individual abilities and how they can best understand the information um, so that you know what mediums of information are really most appropriate for them throughout the treatment process. Brittany, um, if we're trying to quickly determine if somebody is more of a visual learner, an auditory learner, or like a kinesthetic learner, um, how might we quickly probe that? Do you have any? Yeah, I don't think I have, I don't have any tools um, specifically in here. I can definitely get more information on that um, because I know as, as an OT, we've definitely addressed that through cognition a lot of the time and, uh, you know, really testing their, their kinesthetic abilities, um, their sensory awareness, their body awareness, um, along with their cognition, you know, their ability to judge certain situations um, all of that kind of really hints towards their, their learning styles. Um, and I, I know also giving them a few short tasks can definitely go a long way um, in determining what's best. Um, and with some patients, you can even just straight out ask certain patients, you know, what's what's the best way to get information to you? Um, and some patients, you know, they, they have figured out what has worked for them over the years. Okay. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so other, other ways to kind of mitigate these common issues, um, only providing the expected end result. Um, so therapists can kind of work on that by individually coaching patients. Uh, so giving them small steps, kind of using the, that smart goal setting structure um, to help them reach the outcome. Um, so instead of just telling them flat out, you need to lower your blood pressure, giving them those measurable steps uh, to help get them there. So for therapists, this might be really second nature and, and best practice in terms of goals and uh, home programs, but all allied health professionals should really be providing um, as much specific education as they can um, and consistently referring to other professionals uh, when they feel like they can't provide any more. Um, and in terms of culturally insensitive information, uh, it's important for all healthcare pr practitioners to take continuing education. Um, to expand their knowledge in, in these areas and their ability to provide culturally appropriate care. Um, so this will kind of help them develop recommendations that are individually tailored to each person. Um, and they kind of consider all the person's specific factors um, that might be at play. Um, so earlier we talked about a little bit of uh, the health literacy tools. Um, so these are specific therapy tools that actually help uh, measure these health literacy levels. Um, so we have the rapid assessment of adult literacy in medicine, um, also known as the realm. We also have the test of functional health literacy in adults. Uh, we have the short assessment of health literacy in both Spanish and English. Uh, the newest vital sign, which I'm actually excited to talk a little bit about because I think that one's very cool. Um, and we also have the health literacy questionnaire. Um, and I know of a few in particular uh, that are specific to OT that address health literacy, um, you know, along with ADLs and cognition and a few other things. Um, so most disciplines probably have some, uh, you know, sp more specific health literacy assessment within uh, their practice. I've actually used the realm before, but not as a health literacy per se tool, more as like a rapid reading assessment type of thing. 
Yeah, that works too. <laughs> I know, right? But I was like, ooh, I was kind of misusing that assessment. But um, yeah, so like I have it. So then if, I, if I'm questioning whether my patient is experiencing more of like a disconnect with health literacy versus just super low motivation, not buying into therapy, like maybe I should just pull that out and just have them do it because it takes like five minutes tops, if that really and, um, yeah, I've noticed can... that with a lot of these tools that they are pretty quick and, you know, you might think it takes a long time to assess for health literacy, but you know, there's a lot of really applicable real world, uh, instances that you can use. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. I'm going to let you keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, so I was also talking about, uh, readability tools earlier. So if you have any existing content, uh, that you would want to plug into some tools and, and figure out how user-friendly it is. Uh, these are definitely uh, good options. Um, my favorite, only because of the name, is uh, the SMOG test, which is short for the simple measure of gobbledygook. <laughs> Always a good day to put gobbledygook into a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm really proud of the authors for, of that for like sticking to their guns and putting gobbledygook in there. That's fantastic. I know. Sometimes you just got to go for it. Go for the laugh. <laughs> That's right. Now, um, good question, Brittany, are these um, readability assessments uh, free? Yes. Um, I've actually found all three of these online, and uh, there's actually hyperlinks for all three of them. So uh, if you click on that, they'll actually take you uh, to a tool where you can copy and paste content right in there, and it'll give you, uh, you know, feedback and things like that. Um, actually, with the SMOG tool, it's actually the formula to calculate it is pretty complicated. Um, so that one in particular, it helps to be able to copy and paste the content right into the calculator um, because it, it just kind of does it for you and it spits out uh, a grade level, uh, which gives you feedback on you know how readable the content is. Um, but all of these are available uh, through calculators, I believe. Good. And we are always shooting for a third grade reading level. Is that kind of the standard? I feel like I've heard that somewhere. What are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I think, I think that's definitely a safe bet. Um, I think there's different schools of thought, I, I think based on practice area, um, you know, it kind of depends certain things. It might be really hard to make a third grade reading level, but it's definitely not bad to aim for, you know, kind of as low as possible. Um, because you really just to make it accessible for everybody is is definitely a good thing. Um, so for this for the smog test, um, it'll spit out a grade level. So if it'll give you a score of seven point four, uh, that means it's best for a seventh grader, or it's it's easily understood by the average seventh grader. Um, so the checklist can also help assess organization, content, credibility, tone, cultural competence, and design. Um, which is good. It's it's definitely good to look at the content in terms of all those different lenses. Um, and we also have the Gunning Fog Index, which gives you a weighted average of the number of words per sentence and the number of long words per sentence. Um, I personally have used something really similar to that, um, really to make sure my all my writing um, when I write health articles um, to make sure that they're really not long. Uh, because it's it's kind of detracting to really anybody, if, whether it's a consumer reader um, or a patient or anybody. You want to make sure the sentences are short enough um, so that you're not throwing too much information in there at once. Um, so for the Gunning Fog Index, uh, a score of 5 is readable, 10 is hard, 15 is difficult, and 20 is very difficult. Um, and then the last one is one a lot of people might be familiar with, uh, the Flesh Reading Ease Formula. Um, it's, it's a form of the flesh Kincaid grade level test, um, which a lot of people are familiar with in terms of, um, just standard, uh, school age reading. Um, so a higher score indicates, e indicates easier reading. Um, so scores that are nine, between 90 and hundred can be understood by the average fifth grader, 60 to 70 can be understood by the average eighth and ninth graders and zero to 30 can be understood by the average college graduates. Um, and also, I'd be remiss in not mentioning Microsoft Word because they have readability tools um, built in that kind of scan your document as you type and, and notify certain areas uh, that could be broken down more. That is handy. Does Google Documents do that too? Because that's what this homegirl uses. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if Google does. I know they don't have as many of the same features as Microsoft Word, but um, you can definitely 
translate Google Docs, uh, download it into a DocX, um, and then open it in Microsoft Word and, and check that way. That's true. Okay. Yeah, I don't blame you, though. Google Docs are definitely the easiest. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so now that we know really some of the intricacies of health literacy, it's important for um, us to understand how we can enhance the comprehension of our patients. Um, so we have to have a good understanding of health literacy before we can really help other people uh, get there. Mm -hmm. um, so here's some basic health literacy strategies that apply to all settings and populations, um, which are which are really good, um, you know, kind of quick ways to really start implementing this right away. Um, assessing each patient's grade level to understand their written and verbal communication abilities. Um, and once you develop a plan to improve health-related communication with a patient, make sure that you disseminate these basic tips to uh, other professionals involved in their treatment. Um, so either other therapists um, or lay staff like nurses' aides, um, caregivers, companions, um, people who really might not know but could benefit from communicating with them in a certain way. Um, and just in terms of information, uh, chunking all information into small and manageable parts, focusing on one to three highlights of a patient's diagnosis or really inf any information um, and how they can manage it, uh, and relaying this info to family and caregivers when needed with the patient's permission. Um, that'll really ensure that the information's getting where it needs to be and, um, you know, it's, it's not just uh, falling on people who really can't understand it and, and put it into practice. Um, and also when coming up with uh, written content, uh, be sure to use bullet points, short sentences, um, pictures, drawings, or, or really basic illustrations um, and basic words whenever possible. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and some, some other basic strategies um, that really apply to any setting, um, ensure that your treatment environments are really readily accessible. I think a lot of people don't really think that health literacy applies to physical environments as much, um, but it, it, it also covers kind of a patient's ability to navigate uh, their, their area. So making sure that all these treatment environments are well-marked and easy to navigate will really minimize overall confusion. Um, so that kind of applies to therapy rooms, gyms, doctor's offices, um, patients' rooms, anything like that. Um, also providing patients and family with appropriate contact info uh, so they can contact you for further questions. Um, always being helpful and friendly when encouraging patients to ask questions and write down answers. Um, and providing information for trusted sources, so like the American Cancer Society, the Alzheimer's Association, and other government organizations are usually always a, a good bet. Um, make sure you follow up with patients consistently and address language barriers and seek interpreter services whenever needed. Um, so that, again, that's, that's a really good way to make sure that you're, you're addressing culture. Um, if you're not able to provide those language services that a patient needs, uh, it's your due diligence as a practitioner to really make sure that somebody's in there who can uh, really facilitate that therapeutic relationship. Um, and another technique that I'm actually a really big fan of is the teach back technique, um, which is something that really uh, healthcare professionals should be focusing on um, to test patient retention. So, you know, we could be saying all this information, you know, kind of word vomiting almost to our patients all day long. Um, and, you know, you might ask, did you understand everything I said? And, you know, they nod their head or they say yes, but you really have no way of knowing if it's sunk in. Um, so it's really important to actually kind of test your patient's knowledge, kind of put them on the spot and make sure that they're able to um, either restate the information back to you, demonstrate um, or really just, you know, give it back in their own words. Um, so you can do this, uh, you can implement this really easily. Um, so begin by stating that, that you're simply testing how effective you were as the therapist. Um, so really don't put the onus on them. Don't say that you're trying to test their skills, um, you know, or, or catch them in a trap or anything like that. Um, so really just focus on making sure that you're doing the best job at relaying the indicated information. Um, so next, ask the patient to explain or repeat back the information in their own words. Um, so make sure you're making eye contact with them, you're using plain language, um, and empathize with them, speak without judgment. So you're not there to judge whether they're understanding it or not. Um, like I said, you're just making sure that 
uh, they're understanding what they need to take care of their health. Um, so you want to speak slowly, uh, use open-ended questions only to really test the knowledge. Cause like I said, it's very easy for a patient to just say yes or no, um, without not really, without really understanding, um, and document the entire encounter, including the patient's response. So that's another important part of health literacy. Uh, you can be giving the education all day long, but if you're not documenting these efforts, um, then, you know, other people don't really know that the patient's getting uh, what you're giving them. Yeah. Um, whenever I use this technique and I'm a big fan of it too, massive, huge, like I want to like preach it from the mountaintop. Like let's all be doing the teach back method. It is so helpful. Um, so when I ask a patient to do it, I say, um, I want to make sure that I have clearly explained everything to you. So, um, can you tell me what you understood from those instructions that I gave you as if you were teaching this to me and I hadn't heard it before? And then I just wait and see what they give me. And so it tells me what they got and what they missed. So I can go back and try to figure out how to better transmit that information to them so that they understand it and retain it. And then I ask them again, okay, now hopefully you've got the whole picture. Same thing. Tell me what you um, understood. Yeah, absolutely. That's on me. Like, you know, it's my fault if they don't understand or if they're unable to recall it, it's not a test. And I want to make sure that they, they, they got it. Right, definitely. And I think that that goes into empathizing and speaking without judgment. You're, you're not trying to be accusing the patient of anything. Um, you're really just there to help them. Um, and I think it's also it also takes some of the stress off if you could encourage them to write it down, like I mentioned earlier. Um, health encounters are so overwhelming and really stressful. And, you know, a patient really might feel like they're being put on the spot, even if you explain this technique appropriately. Um, so saying, you know, you got, you can look at your notes. I saw you taking notes before you can look at your notes, but you know, take those notes and, and explain them back to me. I want to make sure you wrote it down appropriately. I want to make sure you are, you know, still understanding it. Mm -hmm. Another good thing is, um, you know, I work in outpatient. And so sometimes the patient will come in without family or caregiver present, but they'll go home and their loved one will be like, so what happened today in speech therapy or how did your um, assessment go? And so they need to talk about what happened there. And so you can even, you know, just start with that. Be like, okay, so if I was your spouse at home, what would you tell me that you learned today in your session? Right. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, if you're framing it in, in terms of that, you know, it's, it's non-threatening. You're just talking to a loved one over coffee. It's, it's easier that way. Yeah, I like that. That's a good idea. <laughs> and you read my mind. I have conversation starters, actually. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, these are good. <laughs> um, yeah, so like we mentioned, most of these we talked about. Um, I want to be sure that I did a good job explaining XYZ to you. Can you tell me how you will do it? Uh, what will you tell your wife, friend, child, caregiver, uh, or anybody really about your condition, surgery, or diagnosis? Um, and then if you told them something specific to do, so what is the first thing you will do when you get home? And then I want to be sure I was clear about what you will do the next time you can't breathe well. Can you tell me what the first step is? Um, so it really doesn't have to, you know, all look the same way. Uh, you can definitely make this, you know, a fluid conversation. Um, it, you know, it doesn't have to be formal, uh, but it's definitely a good way to make sure that, you know, you did a good job instructing them. Um, so another similar tool is uh, the Ask Me Three, um, which definitely can be used to get a quick idea of how a patient understands their current situation um, and how much information they've absorbed so far. Um, so you can ask the patient the three questions. Um, what is my main problem? What do I need to do? And why, it is, why is it important for me to do this? Um, so a patient's response to any of these questions will show therapists where exactly the misunderstanding uh, or lack of knowledge lies, and it'll help them develop a plan to fill in these gaps. Um, so a patient could, you know, understand what their main problem is, but maybe, you know, after they entered the hospital, um, you know, for that problem, maybe everything else just kind of became a blur. So you would need to focus on the latter two questions. Um, so it really does help the therapist, uh, you know, develop goals for health literacy um, and really know where the education needs to focus on. 
Um, so I think I'd be remiss in not mentioning telehealth at this point uh, because it's such a big part of so many therapists' um, lives right now. And health education might not be appropriately addressed via telehealth. Um, you know, a lot of therapists were, were kind of thrown into it. Um, they might still be trying to get their footing. Um, but I think it's important to still be addressing health education uh, via telehealth because, you know, the same patient issues remain. Um, and, you know, patients still really need that information, um, possibly even more so now because, uh, you know, the medium of communication is different. Um, so they, they still really need the information to, to get where they need to go. Um, and unfortunately, the, the technological aspect of telehealth can serve as a barrier um, to the treatment process. So certain issues like technology, um, malfunctioning, so video or audio issues, um, a lack of direct support in the physical environment in the form of an e-helper like an aide, parent, or paraprofessional, cognitive or affective issues that prevent full engagement with technology, improper user training, both initially and throughout the patient, the patient plan of care, and an inability to provide hands-on assistance for certain training, such as orthotic or prosthetic use. Um, so, you know, telehealth definitely can pose barriers, but there's also, you know, a wide range of benefits that telehealth can serve. Um, and there's definitely ways uh, around some of these barriers that can really deepen the patient experience even more. Um, so I'm a big fan of really reframing these barriers. Um, you know, everything about our current situation needs to be reframed. Um, you know, a lot of people being thrown into telehealth has, has presented a lot of opportunities um, to really look at things differently and, you know, more opportunities for patients to learn and, and therapists to learn right, right alongside them. Um, so some of these barriers can definitely be transformed into uh, an ability for patients to apply skills they're learning in therapy. Um, so basic technology issues like stream starting with audio muted or video off, uh, that can encourage patients to use some problem solving uh, to really figure out what to do. Um, you know, not all technology issues are, can be resolved that easily, uh, but it definitely can encourage some problem solving um, for basic issues. Um, the absence of an e-helper uh, can encourage patients to use their short-term memory skills, uh, use the organization that they've learned to recall or write down important information. They're going to need to still remember, you know, when their next appointment time is, uh, those home recommendations, uh, really any recommendations from a therapist. Um, and improper user training. Uh, so if a patient really didn't get enough training on how to use that platform, uh, that's really when self-advocacy is going to come into play because uh, they're going to need to seek information from either the provider or family um, or somebody in order to understand how to use it to interact with their therapist. Um, and similarly, with no hands-on training assistance, um, a lot of therapists view that as a barrier. You know, they can't um, do hands-on work like they would usually do in person, um, but it definitely can encourage abstract thinking with patients um, and the ability to apply a visual demo to their own situation. Um, so either, you know, a therapist uh, doing a live demonstration over telehealth or giving them a pre-recorded video um, or written instructions, um, there's still definitely ways that patients can kind of facilitate, or sorry, therapists can facilitate um, this hands-on training and kind of make it just as impactful. Um, and there's other learning opportunities uh, in light of cognitive, or sorry, cognition and uh, affect that might prevent engagement. Um, so this encourages patients to be more adaptable and creative to understand technology in different ways. Um, so especially in explaining uh, these issues to uh, kids and even, even other patients, um, you know, they might not understand the purpose of teletherapy. They might not understand, you know, why it's happening, uh, might not understand how to use it. Um, so for kids, you can kind of frame it. The computer will be your learning portal to help you do all the fun and educational activities that you'd usually do in therapy. Um, or you can call it a creativity helper through which you can play games, talk with your therapist and learn new things to strengthen your body and mind. Um, and, you know, as a last dish effort, you can tell them that there will be games with animals, superheroes, cartoon characters and more <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, it's really easy to incorporate in teletherapy. <laughs> um, and then even for uh, adult patients, uh, there's going to be some explaining. 
Um, this allows you to access so many helpful tools without ever leaving your home. And you can list all the medical services that are available via telehealth. Um, you can also say telehealth is just one of the ways that you can use technology to make your life easier. You can also, and then insert other helpful mediums of technology they can use for rehab. Um, so you can kind of go into all the ways that telehealth can really improve uh, their life and help them manage their health from home. Well, Brittany, we are at almost 50 minutes now. And so it's about time for us to wrap up so that we leave enough time for our Q&A. Okay. So, um, what have we not covered so far that you've prepared? Um, the last section is really just uh, talking about the type. It's really therapist education about telehealth. Um, so I go into a little bit of e-health literacy um, and the types of telehealth and other barriers and uh, opportunities they support. Okay. All right. So that material will be in the um, slides that you've presented that are on the um Speech Uncensored website that people can access. And what we can do is dive into that for our Q&A, unless we get questions from our participants. So Sounds good. All right, cool. Um, well, Brittany, so let's say people are like totally loving this. They want to learn more. They want to find out more about you. How can they get in touch? Uh, my website is simplicityofhealth.com. Um, so that's my, my company's website. Uh, and you can find a list of all my services and everything on there. Um, in addition to uh, a contact form where you can reach out for any questions or really to just, you know, talk shop about health literacy. Excellent. Good. Um, and are you on social media? Um, at this time, I'm only on LinkedIn, but I'm quite active on LinkedIn. So I definitely uh, will reach back out to people if they if they reach out there. I definitely encourage connections. <laughs> Excellent. Good. All right. Well, thank you so much, Brittany. I really loved all the resources that you brought to today's talk and gave us some really applicable tools for understanding health literacy, understanding how we can quickly measure it in our settings and how we can adapt our materials and tools to help us adapt our materials to improve readability and improve this transmission of knowledge that we so deeply want our patients to have. So this was really great. Thank you, Brittany. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad it was beneficial. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 